The sermon text this morning is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Last week I mentioned about the Christian faith is often equated to a race, kind of a, a foot race, and you know all kinds of different foot races, right? I mean, you have some, you have some sprints, you have a hundred yards, two hundred yards, where kind of the idea is just to give everything you have to make it to the end to the tape as quick as you can. So there's not a lot of there's not a lot of thinking involved in the 100-yard dash. It's just run with everything you have uh, for as long as you can until you finish. But there's other races that require a little bit more, a little bit more strategy, let's say, the, the 5K or the 10K or the marathon. <clears throat> These require more than just speed. They require endurance. They require strategy, you know, a kind of a perspective, a longer-term perspective to the run. You, you have to kind of gauge and, and utilize the strength that you have so you can get the most out of yourself for the longest amount of time. Obviously, a marathon probably is closer to understanding the Christian faith than a sprint. I think we like the sprint more. I think it's more exciting for us to kind of just put everything we have for the shortest amount of time. I mean, we kind of see this, I think, when we make New Year's resolutions, for example. I think we have, you know... I think 25%, when we make a New Year's resolution to exercise or to eat right, I think 25% make it for a week. I think 10% make it for the year. We don't do well in the long run. We do better in the short run. And yet the Christian faith is kind of brought before us as a long run, as a marathon, uh, like parenting, you know, you're making decisions every day, but you got to play the long game. You, you, you got to look long term. Things don't happen in a moment. And that causes us some degree of anxiety because we wonder, can we endure? You know, will we last? Will we continue on till the end? And this is what Paul's doing for Timothy right now. I think he's encouraging him to endure. Now, now Paul's a person that is not perfect. But he has endured, not perfectly, but he has. He's in the Mamertine prison um, right now, facing his own death. He has, as he's going to say in chapter 4, he's fought the fight, he's run the race, he's kept the faith. And so he has endured. And he's giving to Timothy that same kind of encouragement. It's the continuing, all of chapter 2 is about the endurance of the Christian in this life. Now, last week we looked at how do we endure. This week he gives us reasons to endure. How do we endure, particularly in suffering? Reasons. Now, much suffering is a mystery, but he does give us four different considerations about giving us reasons to suffer. Uh, the first one that you're going to see is right there in verse 8, to remember Jesus Christ. So, remember the worth of Jesus, considering his great worth will sustain you, will give you 
strength to endure. Uh, Secondly, it's going to be that suffering doesn't prevent the word of God from going forth or advancing. You're going to see that in verse 9. Suffering, uh, we can endure suffering thirdly for the elect. We see that in verse 10, and we'll speak about that. And then, and then last, uh, we do endure in suffering uh, a reason for our own glory, for our own good. We're going to see that in 11 to 13. So look with me first at verse 8. At verse 8, remember Jesus Christ, he says. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Now, he's, he's simply calling us, remember, think about, consider, pay attention to Jesus. And then he kind of goes into the short little gospel. He's the Christ. He's the descendant of David. He's risen from the dead. Uh, what he's telling Timothy here is, I think, remember that Jesus is the Christ. So he's the long-awaited Messiah. The passage that Philip read was a promise given to King David that he would ultimately have a son upon whom all the kingdoms of the world would submit and rest. And so he's saying, remember that Jesus is the one that God has promised. He's the one that's come to save. And he is a descendant of David. He is human. He is fully man. He has come as a king, but he has come as a king to die. You see that he's risen from the dead, so he had to die first before this resurrection. He's risen from the dead, but he's suffered. Now, as king, he's come uh, to establish a kingdom, to bring, king, to bring God's kingdom back uh, to this earth and to establish it, to restore all things to God. He's come to reconcile men and women to himself by his own suffering. But Paul's saying, remember, he suffered. He, he has suffered. He's tasted of suffering of which most of us will never even come close to tasting. One scholar said, in terms of suffering a crucifixion, he says, beheading was a quick death. Crucifixion intentionally kept the victims alive long enough to plunge them into the depths of suffering. But more than physical suffering was a social shame. Crucifixion was reserved for the scum of society, making them a public spectacle, meant to humiliate and dehumanize the victim, displaying them in the most vulnerable position of naked, arms stretched out and struggling to breathe. Uh, This is is the suffering that he wants us to remember, to consider. Leslie Newbigin, a British missiologist, said, the reign of God has indeed come upon us, and its sign is not a golden throne, but a wooden cross. That's why, you know, when you hear Paul write in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, I resolve to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. You see, he's remembering his death. But there's more. You know, he has been raised from the dead. So when Paul says, remember, he's saying, remember that he suffered and died for you. But remember that he's been raised. He's reigning now. And this gives us hope and encouragement in the suffering that you will face as you walk out your Christian life, in whatever form that suffering may take. He's been raised from the dead. He, he was dead, he says in Revelation, I was dead, but I'm alive forevermore. I hold the keys of death and Hades. The resurrection is essential for us to marry with the suffering. Paul says we're meant to be pitied if he hasn't been raised. We're fools to follow one who would be so foolish to suffer without being raised. He's he's suffered and he has been raised. We hold these in tension. Just as the writer of Hebrews says, let us run 
with endurance the race that's set before us. That's what we're speaking about here. Looking to Jesus or remembering Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So he's saying, remember him. Remember that he has suffered and died and he's been raised. As you run with endurance, you need to remember this. Now, does it seem strange to you that he would tell us to remember Jesus as if Timothy somehow would forget him? Well, I, I think what he's doing here is, you know, the, the idea in, of remembering, at least in First Timothy, but also in the Old Testament with the word Remembering has more than just, you know, having the cognition of the facts of the story. Remembering is supposed to have an impact on our life. So there's something spiritual amnesia. You haven't forgotten about Jesus. I'm not reminding you, but I'm reminding you so as to stoke up and to encourage affections that you would have for him. In other words, think about Memorial Day. And Memorial Day we celebrate at the end of May. Do we really remember those who have died for us, who have protected us, and with their lives they've suffered and died for our freedoms? We have monuments of the First and the Second World War and Korean and Vietnam War, but do we go there and do we really remember them? I mean, I, I must admit that there have been dozens of Memorial Days where I haven't given a passing thought to them. It's easy to know something but not remember it. You know, not remember it. And he's saying, you need to remember he suffered and died. But why? So that we appreciate, we grow in our understanding of his worth and his beauty. We need to remember it. And not just understand it, but remember it so that we can endure like him. He said that as he suffered, so would those who follow him. We need to remember it so we don't lead to spiritual ruin. You know, we're about to celebrate this table here. And you're going to hear in these words of institution, what? Take, eat, do this in remembrance of me. You know, with the cup, the blood shed to establish a new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. We need, that's why you come to church. I need to be reminded. You know, each week you're, you're, you're hearing something that you may know, but you don't really remember such that it gives change to your life. And, and Paul's saying that the reason that we endure is because he's worth it. He's worth it. He, he has given of himself. This is the divine son, the son of David, fully God, fully man, come from heaven to save. Our hearts need, ought to be moved. So, so that's the first reason he gives us, that he's worth it. I mean, Jesus is, remember Jesus, he says. But secondly, another reason to endure in suffering is that suffering doesn't stop the advancement of the gospel. Look with me at verse 9. In verse 9, he says, for which I am suffering. So Paul's in prison, he's chained. He says, bound with chains as a criminal. Uh, but the word of God, he says, is not bound. So Paul's not spiritualizing or romanticizing his suffering. He is suffering. I, I mean, being in the Mamertine prison would have, I, I can't even imagine it. it. It was that, remember, I mentioned a few weeks back, it was that underground prison. It just had one hole at the top that allowed light and air in, that's it. And he's chained to this dungeon of which most people only are removed from by death. 
And, and so he's not romanticizing his suffering. He says, I am suffering. He says, but the word of God is not bound. In other words, because he's in prison doesn't mean the work is in prison. I think a lot of people thought, well, Paul's mission and ministry is now over. Now look at him. He's in jail. He's chained. He's gone. He's finished. It's the end of the road for him. So is the end of the mission. But in fact, Paul doesn't feel that way. In fact, he thinks that though he is chained, the word of God's not, he would continue to preach the gospel, which he did do. And he would preach the gospel to those who were there. Who were there? Well, the commanding officers, imperial guards, soldiers that would ultimately be displayed and, and reposted throughout the Roman Empire. This is the way Paul viewed the power of God's word. He wasn't threatened that the word of God somehow is going to come to a grinding halt. He preached to those that he knew would take the gospel to parts of the Roman Empire he could never get to. You say, well, where do you see that in the text, huh? Well, I see it in Philippians, which, by the way, is another prison letter. He says in Philippians, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, that is his imprisonment, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest of my imprisonment is for Christ. So he saw himself preaching to this imperial guard, the praetorium guard, the, the high-ranking officers, those that we posted in different places around the Roman Empire or even going up in the Roman government. He was getting the gospel to people who would then take it to places he couldn't go. So he wasn't threatened by being in prison as if somehow the word of God's going to be shut down. This is why we continue to endure in suffering. He, remember in Philippians and um, when he was in the jail at Philippi in Acts 16? He and Silas singing and preaching and what happens? Well, the jailer comes to faith. Or in uh, the second letter to Thessalonians, he says, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of God may speed ahead and be honored. The word of God like speeding ahead, having a power because it's God's word. Friends, uh, suffering... Uh, we endure suffering for the advancement of the gospel. Our suffering gives life, if you will, or gives light to the gospel. In other words, it's uh, Spurgeon kind of compared the power of God's word to a lion, the king of the beasts. Here's what he says, kind of, it's tongue in cheek. You'll understand it as I read it. He says, a great many learned men are defending the gospel. No doubt it's proper and right thing to do. And yet I always notice that where there are most books of that kind, the apologetics defending the gospel, he says because the gospel itself is not being preached. Suppose a number of persons were to take it in their heads that they are to defend a lion, a full-grown king of the beasts. There he is in the cage, and here come all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. Well, I should suggest to them, if, if they would not object, that they should kindly stand back and just open the door, let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself. And the best apology for the gospel is to let the gospel out. That's what Paul's saying here, the power of the gospel. He, we'll, we may be chained, we may struggle, we may suffer. So friends, when, when you consider the, the, when you look at friends or family and they seem hardened, resistant, maybe antagonistic to the gospel, I want to remind you uh, that their hardness or the difficulty of life, it doesn't diminish the power of preaching the good news that God has given to us a son to redeem and reclaim and reconcile us. You may not see the immediate results, no doubt, uh, but the ultimate results are not yours to worry about. We're called to be faithful and proclaim it. 
It's not up to the persuasiveness of the preacher. It's not up to the competency of, of how articulate someone is to declare it. It should just let the lion out. It, it's God's word. Remember God's word all the way back in Genesis 1. Let there be light and there's light. God, his word is creative. It gives life. God gives life to us through his word. The regeneration of taking out the old man, putting in a new man. Uh, the, the change that we've undergone is by God's power. So, so the gospel is not hindered. It's not bound. In fact, there's a story told by George Whitfield. Uh, he was a British evangelist on both sides of the Atlantic of the uh, 18th century. The Great Awakening. He tells a story about preaching one time, and he preached John 3 many, many times. And he, so he preached one time, and after preaching the message and calling to faith, a man came forward to him. A man came forward and in front of him took rocks out of his pockets and put them on the ground in front of Whitfield. And he said these words. He says, I came to hear you with my pocket full of stones to break your head, but your sermon broke my heart. He came antagonistic, and yet the gospel changed him. Many of you have your own stories of how you heard the gospel and your heart was broken by your own sin, and yet warmed in the goodness of God that he would save. But the question is, why does our suffering advance the gospel? Why does it have to be this way? That Paul says, I'm bound with chains, suffering, but the gospel's not bound. I want to remind you that our suffering today, in light of the gospel, gives a flesh and blood to the gospel. Now, let me explain what I mean. Paul, in the book of Colossians, says, I rejoice that in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. Now, Paul's not saying his suffering adds to the work of Jesus, as if Jesus kind of brought it up three quarters of the way, and then Paul's going to bring it up to the full measure. No, his suffering gave a modern picture. So Jesus' suffering propitiated sin. That, that means that Jesus' suffering actually, actually brought forgiveness of sin to our lives. Uh, Paul's suffering propagates the gospel. It displays the gospel. So when we see a person suffering for the sake of the gospel, we, we understand more clearly what it would have been like to see Jesus suffering for the gospel. Jesus accomplished it. We're only displaying it. We're not creating it, but we're promoting it. So friends, remember that in times of difficulty, when you want to give way, when you don't want to endure, when you want to stop running, it is difficult. The suffering is high. Remember, the gospel is not bound. Things are going against you with a strong headwind. That doesn't mean the gospel is thwarted. And so be encouraged that the gospel will go forth. That will help us in these difficult days ahead where we think we're making no traction in the life of someone, and yet we don't want to forget no, the gospel's not bound, even though they may be restrictive to us. Okay, the third reason that we suffer is for the sake of God's people. Now look with me at verse 10. He says, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So Paul's saying here that he suffers everything for the sake of the elect. Who are the elect? Well, this is obviously a sticking point for the heartbeat of some, 
Uh, but it's in the Bible, and we have to understand it. And I would explain that the elect, I'd submit to you that the elect are those for whom God knew and saved. Ephesians 1 says it this way, that before the foundations of the world, he chose us to be holy and blameless in him. It's difficult to see the salvation of people in the total sovereign hands of God. But we've already read it in chapter 1, verse 9. God saved us, he says, by grace. And this grace was before the ages began, before we had done anything good or bad. If it isn't this way, it's not grace. It's participation. It's earned. And so he's saying that I suffer all things for the elect. Paul's confidence in going through suffering is because he knows that he's doing a work that will result in God's people being strengthened. That's why he says, I suffer everything. Everything. How did Paul suffer? Well, he suffered physically, for sure. He says in Galatians 6:17, I bear on my body the marks of my Savior. So he bears on his body. If you wonder what those marks may have been, just look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He tells us, I received five times uh, lashes, less one. Three times I've been beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger from the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardships, through many a sleepless night, hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. I'd say he has a resume of bearing many, many marks of the Savior on his body. So he's saying, but for the sake of God's people, I will endure that. Now, this isn't just in evangelism, like he's going out to the unconverted and suffering. I think it includes that. But I want you to also know that there's suffering he endured, and there's suffering that we endure from the church. For the sake of the elect. Because at the, at the end of that litany of suffering, he says, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety of all the churches. Paul is concerned that the churches thrive and grow. And he's laboring and suffering for the sanctifying grace for the church. He says the same thing in Galatians 5.19 or 4.19. He says, I'm again in the pains of childbirth until Christ be formed in you. There is a struggle. There is a struggle in playing a role member to member, leadership to member, of seeing us grow in faith in Christ. It's difficult. It's hard. You're misunderstood. You're not appreciated. Motives are implied about you. Uh, people are awkward. They're difficult. And it's difficult to want to get into the messier parts of people's lives so as to apply the gospel to see sanctifying graces. Because he's suffering all things for the sake of the elect. It's not just to get them saved or however you want to phrase it. It's to see them converted, but it's to see them grow. I mean, it doesn't stop there. This is the call of discipleship. Now, I know many of you are thinking right now in your mind with, you know, kind of the elect in that language. Well, why even evangelize if they're elect? You know, why should I even preach the gospel if God's already planned to save them? Well, remember this, folks. Just because God ordains those for whom he saves, he also ordains the means by which he saves them. So, so election doesn't deny the role of preaching. It doesn't make it unnecessary. It only makes it effective and it makes it joyful. And Paul still said they work together. Paul says, 
how can they believe on the one they haven't heard? Unless someone's sent. You know, so, so there's a means by which we deliver this. And there is cost associated. That's what he's saying. I suffer all things for the sake of the elect. So he's willing to suffer. Many folks go into very difficult contexts to take this message for the sake of those. That's why we pray for, you know, in Revelation 5, there will be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Well, how are they going to come unless they're sent? So that's part of the cost. But I want you to also recognize that part of the costs of serving the church is discipleship. Friends, I want to encourage you, if you're not in discipling relationships, where you're not acting with redemptive ways for your brothers and sisters, that you would engage in that. Maybe these Bible studies or reading a book with someone. We are in a race that requires endurance. And these races usually require people encouraging us along the way. You know, Paul said, and I read this a couple of weeks back, he says, my de- Desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I'll remain and continue with you for your progress and joy and faith. Who are you ministering to and discipling for their progress and the joy of their faith? You know, that they're progressing because of your influence or that they're finding greater joy in Christ because of your efforts. Maybe you'll be in service to them Maybe it's more instructional. Maybe it's listening. Maybe it's holding someone accountable. Now, I am at, many of you feel uncomfortable. Discipleship is a kind of a scary word. I don't know how to do it, per se. And it could be just simply like listening. Maybe you're just reading a text together or reading a book together, but wanting them to be different next year, that they would love Christ more, that they would endure with him more, that they would remember him more. So that's really just a third reason why we endure suffering, because it's for the good of you. Are you suffering for me? Okay, the fourth uh, reason that we endure suffering is for our own glory. Look at the text with me. It's kind of a challenging passage. 11 to 13, he says, the saying is trustworthy. For if we've died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Uh, Most scholars think this is kind of an ancient poem. This is kind of a a Christian hymn that was maybe sung at baptisms. Uh, It's really um, four conditional statements, kind of if-then. Two couplets. Two seem to be more positive about the rewards of faithfulness, and two negative you know, kind of warnings for faithlessness. Uh, You see, it's really for the church here, because Paul moves from the singular in 9 and 10, where he's speaking about I, and then he moves to we in this passage. So it seems to be spread to the church. He's encouraging us, I think, to endure. He's encouraging Timothy and all of us. He says, if we have died with him, we will live with him. I don't think that's calling us to run to a martyr's death. I think it's more that daily sacrifice of our own, perhaps even dreams and desires to serve other people. I I think there's a daily death that goes along with 
walking the narrow road, a, a, a giving up, maybe being more generous with our money for those who are in need rather than just satisfying the immediate want that we have, or, or maybe giving time up to somebody that needs to be listened to that we've listened to before and we, we're tired of listening to them, or, or extending ourselves in some form of physical help. Th those daily deaths that you do, uh, to me, sometimes that seems like harder than physical suffering. The constant putting our own selfishness to death. He says, if you've, if you've died with him, you will live with him. So it's an eschatological view. It's looking to, you will live with him if you've died with him. And, and likewise, he says, and, and likewise, he says, if you endure with him, you'll reign with him. If you continue on, Timothy, this is like a, Timothy, you know, Paul's like a, a mentor here, coaching him. If you endure with him, you're going to reign with him. Now, what in the world does that mean? To reign with Christ? Well, I think you know it. I think you see it all through the Bible, don't you? You're like, he is out to lunch. But think about it. Genesis 1 and 2. You were created in the image of God. Adam and Eve. What were they created to be? A king and queen. They were given a kingdom. They were called to rule. That's what kings do. And guard. That's what queens do. They rule and they guard a kingdom. And they cause their kingdom to flourish. That was the original call to the first couple. Jesus has come as the second king. And he's come to make us a kingdom of priests, kings and queens, that now we're going to reign with him. He is the ultimate, the quintessential king. But we are going to be like him when we see him. We're being fashioned into his image from glory to glory to glory. We're going to be the same. So when he says you'll reign with him, that there is a future day in which we are in the government of our Lord serving him and causing this earth to flourish, just as it was originally designed in 1 and 2 of Genesis, so we see it meted out in the end of Revelation. That's our hope. That's how we endure. We're going to be there. He's saying, don't forget to look at that day. If you live the Christian life without a strong, eschat, with, without a strong eschatological view, and eschatology means last things, if we don't have an eye on that day, it's really going to be tough. It's going to be tough to endure. But notice the warning here. The warning is, is sobering to me. And I don't want to minimize a warning that he has made significant. He says, <clears throat> if we deny him, he will deny us. He will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, what does this mean? Well, these are the words of Jesus. Jesus did say, so don't write Paul off here. Don't say Paul's off on a limb. Jesus himself said, if you don't acknowledge me before men, I will not acknowledge you before my Father who is in heaven. So he's only taking Jesus' words. And he's reminding Timothy, if you deny him, then he'll deny you. And notice, he's speaking to the church here. He's speaking to those who profess to know Christ. And remember, denial can be not just in words, but it can be in deeds. In Titus chapter 1, uh, Paul writes, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. We know these people. We are often these people, right? We say this, but we do this. And depending upon how big that chasm is, displays what level of hypocrisy we have. You know, th there is this idea of we profess this, but we do this. 
And, and there's a, a warning here that I don't want to minimize. Now, I, I don't want to bring conviction to you unnecessarily. Because when it says if we deny him, uh, the tense means that if we deny him and keep denying him, a pattern, it's like a permanent denial. It, it's like a life being lived without any recognition. You know, the way Romans 1 says is they didn't honor him and they weren't grateful to him. Now, that may be a little bit more practical for us to consider our own lives. But it's a warning for us to look at our own souls and to test ourselves, it says in Corinthians. Test ourselves. See if we are in the faith. I mean, do some hard inspection. If you have trouble, ask someone, say, what do you see about my life? Invite that kind of help. Now, many of us are feeling right now, well, what about that verse 13? 13 says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Some people want to see that and say, whew, that's like the get out of jail card. Even if we are faithless, even if we do deny him, he's going to be faithful to us for he cannot deny himself. That's one understanding. Uh, the other understanding, which I think is a harder read, which is probably where I would lean, is he says, if we are faithless, which is parallel to if we deny him, if we are without faith consistently, <clears throat> then he will be faithful. And by that, he will honor his word and he will deny us. So, so I don't want to soften a very hard word. Now, saying that, many of us are like, but we have denied him. I can tell you right up front, I've denied him, both in word and deed. So what do we do? Uh, where is the hope here? Well, remember what Paul's doing here. He's encouraging endurance. He doesn't think this of us. But, but there is something about when we have denied him, the true child of God will feel conviction by the Spirit of God. And they'll feel like, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. And then we're led to repentance by God's faithfulness. And we repent of that hypocrisy that's exposed in my life. Or I repent of the denial that I did. And I repent. And what do I do? I move back to faith. And, and, and I begin to walk. God, forgive me. I do love you. I, I do believe in you. I failed. Uh, but, but you're forgiving and you're good. And so I run to him. Don't we see the same thing in Peter? Uh, Peter denied him three times. He professed him. He said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then he denied him three times. And, but what happened? Jesus, so gracious of Jesus. But do you love me? You know I love you. Three times to offset the three denials. And then Peter walks by faith. And Peter endured. Tradition has it that he died by crucifixion upside down. So as to not even be compared to Christ. He endured. So friends, that's us. We, we, we do deny. But do we, do we feel the conviction of God's spirit? I, I shouldn't walk that way. We repent and we believe. Think about Jesus when he began to come, when he started his ministry. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. There is repentance and faith that we do throughout life. It's not a one decision for Jesus and then go live the best life now. It's a repentance and faith throughout life. It's really important for us to see. Endurance is not perfection. Endurance is repentance and faith throughout life. Uh, maybe some of you feel <clears throat> just horrid 
over the past week and the events in your life. Let me encourage you and take that guilt or shame, whatever you're, and, and go to the one who is greater in forgiveness than we are in sin. And we repent and we, we recommit. That's really what the table's about, a kind of a recommitment. This is a, a renewal of a covenant service that we have. It really leads us right to the table to remember Christ. Uh, this table is a, it's a recommitment. It's, a, it's, like, um, it's like I remember with a, a dear family in this church. After married 25 years, we did kind of the marriage vows again. They, they recommitted. They had been committed, but they wanted to recommit. That's what the table's about, a reminder of this covenant that God has established. You know, as we prepare for this table, uh, I want to remember Jesus because that's the words you're going to hear from the elders are do this in remembrance of me. So what are you to remember? You're to remember that he has suffered for you and that he is now reigning for you. The reason we want to hold these intentions is that the suffering will bring us to a place of sorrow over sin, even mourning. It will humble us. It will bring us to a place of, of great humility we want to remember that. It will keep us from pride and arrogance. And as we are sanctified, as we are being changed, uh, we still, you know, blessed are those who mourn. They shall be comforted, Jesus says. So there's a right place of sorrow over sin in the life of the Christian. Uh, but at the same time, we want to remember that he is reigning, right? And, and, and when, you look into, you know, when you look at the bread, you see it broken. You see it, it kind of shattered, if you will. That's reminding you of that your sins and my sins have been placed upon him and he has been crushed for them. He's, he's borne the wrath of God for our sins. We bear it no more, but he did bear it. And we want to remember that. When you look into the cup, you're to remember this new covenant that's established. It's not a covenant that's kind of enacted on the blood of bulls and goats it has to be repeated every year that's what was in the old testament no it's now on the blood of a perfect lamb he takes away the sins of the world the sins aren't covered they're taken away so you bear them no more and so that produces a joy and a satisfaction see the christian kind of has that sense of i am sorrowful over my sin but i am rejoicing and thankful over god and over all that he's done in bringing forth a Messiah to save. So when you prepare your souls to come to the table today, then, then have that, we have that moment of confession, but then we want to come happy, happy that God has provided one for us. And, and you want to come, uh, another way of, of coming, remembering, is you're coming to receive. I love what Charles Spurgeon wrote about this communion he says, um, he says, one of the best ways to remember Christ is simply by receiving him. That's what you're doing when you're coming to the table. You're not asked to bring anything with you when you come. You didn't get a notice to bring bread with you. It's here already. You're not asked to bring your own cup with you. It's provided for you here already. What do you have to do? Well, nothing but eat, nothing but drink. You have to be receivers and nothing more. And any time you want to remember your Lord and Savior, you don't say, I must do something for him. 
No, simply we remember what he has done for us. You take the cup of salvation. You call upon the name of the Lord. If you want to come confident in your own goodness, then he says, go to your own table. Don't come to his table. But if you trust in him alone, penitent over your sin, in need of mercy, longing for God to change you, then come to his table. His table is a table where we receive. So friends, let's take a moment now and just prepare our hearts for this table. And again, let it be a, a moment perhaps of conviction and, and then let that move to celebration. And then I'll pray for us. Father, I would ask that <clears throat> you would give us your spirit to understand these, these words. Um, Father, we confess that we do flag in strength and faith. We are like the man of, of Mark 9. I believe, help my unbelief. And we find ourselves uh, faltering. And then we, then we look at this table uh, where your own son has given his life. We remember that his body was broken. And we remember that his blood was shed for us. And we're, uh, we're convicted. And yet we want to be people who celebrate your kindness to us in him. So, Father, help us by your spirit to fill, to feel that, that sense of burden lifted, the sense of joy restored, restore to us the joy of this salvation. Father, we've confessed to you that we have failed, but we are thankful that even though we have failed, we are, we are, we are repenting and believing and will come to the table remembering what he has done for us. And we rest in your word that says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So Lord, we, we are brothers and sisters and the blood of, of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. But if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, thank you for this word of hope. Uh, grant to us the joy of the salvation. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.